0: Letter by Paul in the Bible, so hear the rest, all right? He says this In line with all this, I have a favor to ask of you. As Christ's ambassador and now a prisoner for him, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it was necessary, but I'd rather make it a personal request. While here in jail, I fathered a child, so to speak, and here he is, hand-carrying this letter, his name, Anesimus. He was useless to you before. Now he's useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, but it feels like I'm cutting off my right arm in doing so. I wanted in the worst way to keep him here as your stand-in, to help out while I'm in jail for the message. But I didn't want to do anything behind your back, make you do a good deed that you hadn't willingly agreed to. Maybe it's all for the best that you lost him for a while. You're getting him back now for good, and no mere slave this time but a true Christian brother. That's what he was to me. He'll be even more than that to you. So, if you consider us to be in the trenches together, welcome him back as you would me. If he damaged anything or owes you anything, chalk it up to my account. This is my personal signature, Paul and I stand behind it. I don't need to remind you, do I, that you owe your very life to me? So do me this big favor, friend. You'll be doing it for Christ, but it will also do my heart a lot of good. I know you well enough to know you will. You'll probably go far beyond what I've written. And by the way, get a room ready for me. Because of your prayers, I fully expect to be your guest again. Epiphras, my cellmate in the cause of Christ, says hello. Also my co-workers, Mark and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke. All the best to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a letter written by Paul while he was in prison to a good friend of his named Philemon. It's a Paul written to this guy named Philemon all about receiving back this slave that had become useless to Philemon but now is sent back is a brother in Christ. Now, I came across this intro to the letter that I want to share with you today. I just love how it, how it kind of encapsulates the heart of what things are about. A guy named Eugene Peterson writes this. Every moment we make in response to God has a ripple effect, touching family, neighbors, friends, and community. Belief in God alters our language. Love of God affects daily relationships. Hope in God enters into our work. But also their opposites unbelief, indifference, and despair. None of these movements and responses, beliefs and prayers, gestures and searches can be confined to the soul. They spill out and make history. If they don't, they are under suspicion of being fantasies at best, hypocrisies at worst. Philemon and Onesimus, the slave owner and the slave who who are the main characters who figure prominently in this letter from Paul, they had no idea that believing in Jesus would involve them in radical social change. But as the two of them were brought together by this letter, it did. And it still does. That line, it did. And it still does. Because Jesus and a relationship with him impacts Everything. Now, we got something really cool that's going to happen here today. Through the month of April, we've been looking at these letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. But for most of us, some kind of kind of um, experience with prison personally just isn't there. So, to kind of grasp hypothetically remains just that hypothetical. But we've got someone here today who's going to share his story. Great guy. His name is Wayne Reed. He's been with us here at FOF for about five years now. But for three and a half of those years, he has been our mission partner, so to speak, serving as an incarcerated inmate in the Oxford Federal Penitentiary. He's been home for about a year now. He's got a story, successful career, great family white picket fence exactly 2.5 children <laughs> and and then it shifted it shifted and he's going to tell a story here today about how that happened about his experience in prison about what he learned about God in that place how he saw God working in and through him and others and through it all, hopefully giving us a picture of what it was like for Paul when he was in prison too and bringing these letters on the page to life in a new and vivid way. And so, just ask you today, give a big welcome to Wayne Reed.
1: Mr. Reed, there are some in the media that think because your victims were rich football players, then I'm going to go easy on you. That is not the case. I sentenced you to 48 months, and the words that follow that very much feel to me like a peanut cartoon where it was just a wah-wah-wah-wah-wah. How do you respond when you're in a situation and you hear those words words that you never had hoped to hear, expected to hear, and that are against everything you prayed for, when all of a sudden, life blew up. And you start looking at what that really means to you, but more importantly, to all those people around you, and all those lives that will be impacted by the situation. To put it in context, what I was trying to do was develop a film studio in Louisiana. The hope was we were going to provide a lot of jobs to an area that really needed them post-Katrina. And we were making really good progress with that. We had a property identified, we had a building identified, we had funding in place. But then 2008 happened. Things changed. Money goes away. But the opportunities don't. So as an entrepreneur, you go, what are we going to do about moving this thing forward? I have this beautiful big movie, The Expendables, not really a beautiful movie. but wants to get made in a big space. We have to get this done. And already I was rushing. Already I was starting to leave God maybe to decide, if not behind, in what I was trying to do. So an individual came to me and said, you know what? I have a bunch of my friends on the team that buy tax credits, and we were going to get a lot of those from the state of Louisiana for what we were doing. And they will have money to get you started. They'll give you the help you need to kind of get moving forward great let's go get this thing done I'm going to start getting busy working on everything and I started rushing and things weren't documented correctly expectations were not understood clearly between everybody and because of who these people were and where I was things accelerated very quickly it spun out of control and 24 months later I heard those words from a judge and my response was devastation I remember going into a little room, I was by myself in the sentencing, and calling up Lynn. I said, honey, it's not six months. It's not a slap. Despite letters from a judge that was liquidating our property or or the studio and said, could find nothing wrong in what we were doing, in spite of letters of people saying, look, this is not Wayne's character. It's 48 months, honey. And I had to fly home and figure out what that was going to look like. But in looking at all this, um, I realized that how we respond to stuff in our lives is really where God starts meeting us. It could be incarceration or maybe something like a health prognosis or a relational challenge, something maybe not as dramatic. But when I share these numbers with you next, I would guess that also incarceration impacts a lot more of us than maybe we visibly want to share. I think it's one of those hidden things that either we've been close to it, and we are lucky we got out of it, or we are on the edge of it now, or we know someone it was, someone that is, in our family, in our friends, in our circles. Hello. Switch on the side, turn it on. There we go. It was going so smoothly. He, these are numbers that are, are back and forth a little bit by a couple hundred thousand But 6.5 million individuals, dads, moms, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, are either incarcerated, which means they are in a setting of incarceration with whatever controls go along with that, on probation, which sometimes is a period of time after you've been incarcerated, or on parole. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot in the context of a population of 300 million people in the United States, does it? But it's equal to the populations of Chicago and Los Angeles combined. That's a whole lot of people that are impacted by this event. That is not just about them. Because if I was asked for a show of hands, how many of us know more than 10 people in our lives? 15, 20, 25, 30? Our circles, without realizing it, are pretty big. So before you realize it, over 25%, if you only know 10 people, 15 people, about 25% of our culture is impacted by incarceration. So if I was looking around this room and I was working strictly mathematics, I would go, OK, all you guys have been impacted by this. Just by me being here and Lynn being here and our relational circles, we probably touch on a number of people in this room alone. So I think that's a conservative number. But what's really so critical, and this is something I've I've not branded, but help me understand it. Um, When an explosion goes off in the natural world or in your life, something I call the shrapnel effect. And the shrapnel effect is whatever actions or events that are taking place with you have an intentional consequence, that thing that was it was targeted at, to me, the, the target was, hey, I'm gonna punish you. You're gonna go do 48 months in a federal institution. Fortunately, it wasn't a um, penitentiary. That's a different ranking, way up there with lots of bars and sharp wires and things like that. And I'll show that to you in a minute. But um, that shrapnel effect hurts a lot of people. I know my shrapnel effect cost my wife her job at a big church because they were wondering, How did you not know your husband was doing this? She's like, My husband didn't know this was going on. My kids got affected. My friends, the trust in relationships I built up over decades shattered, blown up. So we need to understand that when things happen in our lives and we don't respond to them as God would see us respond or need us to respond, and we ignore all those warning markers. I remember sitting in a a, um, situation out in um, Salt Lake City at the Sundance Film Festival when we were announcing the studio. And my wife has a beautiful gift of discernment, said, "Um, honey, I don't trust this situation. I think you need to stop. And I was like, honey, I got this. I'm fine. (laughs) See how that worked out? (laughs) I have never not listened to her again, no matter what. I'm not arguing the point. Um, But that's also caution. God will sometimes use other people to talk to us because we're not hearing him in any form or fashion and say, I'm going to speak through Lynn, or I'm going to speak through Dave, or I'm going to speak through Keith, or I'm going to speak through Jen, or I'm going to speak through Mark, whoever that's going to be. Um, So understanding that shrapnel effect and the impact it has on our culture and our society for any of the events in our lives is so important. Um, This was home. This is Oxford Prison Camp. Um, Right there was my first room. Um, There was a guy named Woody that was in there. He looked like a big Mr. Clean. Um, Woody was about 6'6", weighed about 300 pounds of muscle, except around his stomach, which I'm feeling a little guilty of right now. And um, he was a crooked cop in Chicago who beat people to get money out of him so he wouldn't, like, get him in trouble, give him a ticket, or arrest him. Bad guy. My other roommate was a guy named Rich, who had been slinging cracks since he was old enough to kind of move around the street, and has spent his entire life incarcerated. So this wasn't... um, all your white-collar golf-playing kind of guys, that's a big fantasy. Um, maybe some rich people get some preferred treatment. Like the average person going through this kind of stuff, you're commingled with a bunch of people who are low security, but they've earned their way there through a long process, or they got there because they're not really a threat to society, so it's a little different. Most of my time, I spent right there in that room, there are about three of us in a room, four of us in a room, 10 by 10, 10 by 11. You have four lockers, four bunk beds, and kind of two and two. And um, I was fortunate enough in that situation. That room was cold. This place was interesting. Um, it was built by a guy who got arrested for, um, for fraud. And it's a federal institution. Um, he built the standards to Florida when he built it in Wisconsin. This is Oxford, Wisconsin. It gets real cold. We had one year where, um, just so you understand the environment, it was so harsh that our water froze when it was left on our desk by the window in the room. And we only had so many blankets they give you because they don't want to give you too many. Um, But yeah, but this this was home uh, for a while. Uh, Demographics inside a prison like this, we had an 18-year-old was our youngest. 70 was probably our oldest. 18-year-old um, happened to be from Native American Reservation because he was um, on a federal reservation. Anything you do is federal crime. So they send these kids away, and they are scared to go back because they know they're going to do it again. Um, out of that population, I moved ahead. Out of that population, um, you had guys that um, were stepped down from attempted murder had been in the system 25 years, and they went from the really bad place down to a little bit better place, a little bit better place, a little bit better place, eventually get to a camp. Um, We had guys that were white-collar. We had guys that were blue-collar. We had black, white, Hispanic, Native American, every ethnicity you could possibly imagine in that environment. Um, They were there for drugs. Drugs still found its way into the camp. And uh, the harsh part was, if you blew it here, you did go to that place that was about within sight distance, a heavy-duty federal federal institution, and you would go behind uh, that situation after you messed up enough. So this looks kind of like, oh, there's no fences around there, whatever, but you're watched, you're counted three times a day, you're um, dealing with a pretty restrictive environment, but you don't have much of a stumble rate, where if you blow it, if you don't stay on track, um, there's going to be a significant consequence, again, to your life. Um, One-third of the people there screwed up, and they acknowledge it. They screwed up. For whatever reason, they made their mistake. Uh, Another third of the people there can't really quite figure it out. They're struggling through it. A little bit of denial, which I think we can all go through and relate to at times when we've made a mistake. Um, and one third of people deserve to be there, and they're trying to figure out how to do it again smarter next time. They are. You have the smart, and what's interesting is you can be anybody in prison because you really can't, you can't Google anybody. And um, you can be anybody. So we have guys that say they were this, and they really weren't that. You kind of knew it. Um, But you had guys that were figuring out they are going to be so much smarter about what they're going to do next time to get away with it. There was a guy that was there, he was a white-collar guy, and he's like, yeah, I got over on the government for like $15 million, and guess what, I can do it again when I get out of here. I only have to serve three years. I did the calculation. It's worth it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? How is that worth it? Buddy, that's the thinking is, some guys are going to figure out how they're going to sell dope smarter. How are you going to do this? You're still selling dope. What are you thinking? So sometimes prison doesn't make you smarter, that's for sure. So um, what I'm going to share with you, and it's hard to kind of to funnel down. and If I go along, I really apologize. Three and three years a month, Dave. Don't quit saying three and a half years. Um, 37 months, thank you very much, because I was on really good behavior, um, to funnel the, that experience down into something that I think are good takeaways for us. Um, and this was not a clinical exercise in terms of these categories didn't come as I walked into the situation these categories came in an environment where everyone's spinning out of control. You're lost. You're trying to figure stuff out. You know that you've hurt your family. You're working on relational stuff. You're owning the things that God needs to work on in you. And so much of what I loved about Dave read in the preamble, which is really kind of my key to my message, is it's how we respond again to what God puts before us that engages us in our ministry, engages us in the work he might have us do. So um, one of the areas... Up, again and put the button on. Come on. It can't be that hard. Okay. It's not working. It went before. There we go. So what I decided is, uh, not decided, what I think God revealed to me is one of the pathways I have with him is worship. Um, And we're going to have to share some of it in one form later on. But worship takes on so many facets, doesn't it? If we think worship is just about singing a song really loud, and if we're really good at worship, we do this we're wrong. Because the Bible says, and I'm not going to do too many deep theological dives today, but God says everything we do is worship. I loved how Brother Lawrence said, he was a 17th century monk, a French monk. He wrote a a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And what he said is that you take those every ordinary mundane things and you make them little acts of worship. And he specifically was talking really about um, prayer, but it went into everything we did. So there we go. So I'm going to talk a little bit about praise as a way to worship, um, as a way I found that God was leading me into worship. So I walk into this place, and I'm not sure. I said, I better get hooked up with the Christians. That's kind of like, you know, what you think about. I'm a Christian. I got to hook up with the Christian guys. Um, It's not that easy, and sometimes that's not a good thing, because just hooking up with an, an identity group out of just ignorance is sometimes leads you to a place that you don't want to be. Um, because there are Christians that get it messed up, too, and Muslims get it messed up, and non-denominational people that get it messed up, and Protestants that get it messed up. It doesn't matter. But what ended up happening is um, there was a choir rehearsal announced. And I was like, cool, I can do this, choir. And it ended up, I walk into a room. It's our chapel, and it was actually, we were really blessed to have a chapel that was used for all the different faiths, but primarily, since we had the largest population of of Christians, that's what we kind of used it for, and there were three or four guys sitting around the table singing a cappella badly. I mean, they had no instrumentation, and they were singing hymns badly. I mean, they couldn't hit a harmony. They tried; they couldn't even sing in unison together. And my first instinct is like, okay, I'm just going to quietly pretend they didn't see this guy walk through the door of a new guy, and I'm just going to kind of pretend this isn't here. But no, God led me to that door for a reason. And I said, these guys have great hearts. You could feel it. They were doing this because they loved it. And I noticed, I sat down and said, hey, you guys, want to join? And they walked me and said, yeah, come on, join us. And I'm like, what well, part do you want me to sing? They go, whatever. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'll figure out whatever part. Um, but out of the corner of my eye, I was very quick to see a guitar sitting there, which is something I've played my entire life. Um, starting out secularly, learned how to play really cool bluegrass when I was a kid. Um, and then also more often in church. Uh, so I saw this guitar sitting in the corner. I was like, hey, did you guys ever think about like, using that and helping, you know, because they said, well, the piano's horrible, it's out of tune. I'm like, okay, well, the guitar's out of tune too and has dust on it, but can we use this thing? And I had the opportunity to say, yeah, sure. So that next Sunday, this is a Wednesday, I'm up with these Oxford Voices of Praise, they called themselves, which always made me gack out too. Um, Oxford Voices of Praise, it just sounds so wrong for a prison. They couldn't even have a cool name for themselves. Um, and I started playing guitar with them. And very often, God used my leadership gift to say, you know, guys, we can be about this better. We can glorify God better with our gifts and our talents and our skills. How about if we try this? And um, this was a February of 2012, right? Am I correct my math looking at Lynn? Um, guess what was around the corner? Good Friday and Easter. So they go, well, all of a sudden, so I was in church that Sunday. They we're singing these songs, and they were bad songs still. They were still, I had to get them out of the old hymnal book um it wasn't anything contemporary at this point we had probably like six or seven people show up to church every day it's out of a population of about 200 um, and i said well let's um let's let's you know let's try these new about try some contemporary music no we can't do that we don't know how and i was like well i can maybe figure this out and um so but they said hey what are we gonna do for good friday i'm like what do you mean and i no, i asked them i said what do you guys do for good friday around here and they go, we don't do anything for Good Friday. What's, what's Good Friday? What's, why do we need to worry about that? And I'm like, well, you can't do Easter without Good Friday. And I found myself led. Actually, I wrote a Good Friday service talking about how Jesus was a consistent light, even going through the darkness. And we wrote, I wrote, which I'd never done before, um, God deployed me in a new way. And we had a, a tenebrae service in prison that actually about 25 people showed up. So it was like four times what we normally get on a Sunday. And that began a really cool way of God deploying me in new ways, exciting ways throughout this process. Um, so we started doing that, and um, it led to, I think I did every Sunday worship leading, except for two out of 37 months. So God used me in that way. We also had Saturday night praise and um, worship services that they called. That became some teaching times, became where we'd do some workshops, but really sometimes it was just like, let's, let's just praise for as long as we can, and try to bring the walls down on this place. We started introducing contemporary music, things that you would all know that we sing here. And we had to do it very awkwardly in that we didn't have music. We couldn't have music really sent in too much. So I would get lyrics emailed to me, and I'd have to listen to it on some form of radio. We eventually bought MP3 players um, where I had to like, figure out the music and the notes from that and teach it to guys that were learning how to do it. Uh, so it was a very cool experience, and God used us to do Christmas programs. We ended up having, um, by my last Christmas there, I had about 12 guys involved in the service, and we, um, we, we packed it out. The chapel could hold 60 people. We had 80-some-odd people come sitting outside, including guards that had seen what we were doing, and they started, all of a sudden, our, our ministry circle, our response, our shrapnel effect in a good way started going beyond... The couple guys that were sitting around singing one time, off- tune, because we surrendered to whatever process and we responded to the opportunities God put before us. One really cool person God put in my life was Greg. Greg was 23 or 24, I think, when I got there. Um, he messed up. He got involved with something with his stepdad. He was raised in a church. His dad worked for a giant Baptist church his entire life. He went out and used to evangelize to kids in the inner city of Chicago from Indiana. But he was a mess. He was engaged before he came in and his girlfriend gave birth to his baby while he was in prison Greg um, very much was my son to me in age and where he was coming from and all of a sudden I said okay God what am I supposed to do with Greg am I supposed to just have him be part of the band you know he wanted to play piano he hadn't played for a long time and uh Greg uh, became special. He shared all the stuff that was going on in his life. I could walk around. We had this track. And when people were going through hard times, they would walk to track. And I took I don't know how many miles of walking with him as his girlfriend left him, as he struggled with how to deal with that, how to still be a dad to a girl. He could only see on the best situations every other week. That was our visiting time. And only if someone could give her a ride up. So Greg became... um, an opportunity for me to minister in new ways to somebody who was like a son but wasn't and who just had a heart for worship, had a heart for praise that was just beautiful. And he would convict me sometimes saying, you know, Wayne, you only gave half of it there. Come on, get back to it. What are you leaving early for? You got to run to the chow hall? Um, There were times he kept me on point. Um, But Greg, it was interesting as I was transitioning, um, I had to step back and let him lead. Um, in worship, which was awkward for me, I had been doing it for so long, and watching God work through him and continue to have a good relationship with his wife or his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, have a good relationship with his daughter, who would just jump and smile whenever she came into the visiting room, was a beautiful thing to behold. And Greg really stood, stepped into that role um, as I was leaving, and he continued to ripple on others um, beyond the impact I had on him while he was there, he was going to impact other people beyond not just that facility, but he eventually transferred to another facility and, um, used his worship there. So it was pretty cool. Another way that, um, I'm going to kill this thing. There we go. Okay. Um, another powerful way that God revealed to me. And again, these were a lot neater in hindsight was the power of prayer, um, in that situation. Um, the first, they, I found out that it was interesting. This, this gentleman had greeted me the first day there. Name was named a gentleman named Eric Merkel, and I'll talk about him in a little bit. Um, he was there for a long time, but he's the first person said, "Hey, you know, we gather every night at, and pray. Would you like to do that?" And it's weird because in prison you have all these like count sections. You can only be at a certain place for a certain time, and then you got to come out of that and you got to get counted because, like, for some reason, we did have a couple people missing one time, and they were like, "Where'd they go?" Well, they left. Um, they found them. They no longer came back here. They went to the place down the hill or some other ugly place nearby. Um, but, yeah, they do. Some people think, oh, there's no locks here. I'm just going to walk out. I remember one time watching a guy come around. The, <laughs> this is the total sidebar. He comes running back in. He has two giant bags of Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? And somebody visited, dropped it off by the road, and they went running out there thinking the camera was not going to catch this person running around in, B, in zookeeper green with two giant bags of Kentucky Fried Chicken in their hands. I think he got a bite into it before it ends up uh, getting confiscated, and he went to the hole. Um, so, totally sidebar. So, Eric said, hey, we, we pray every night. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, praying out loud, and what do we, how do we do it? And I went there, and there was like three or four guys that were sitting around the table, and they um, would just lift up prayers about their family, about their friends, about the stuff that was happening in their life, openly, honestly. And I was like, wow, this is new. People were being raw. This is supposed to be prison. You're supposed to have tough guy stuff up. You're not supposed to, like, reveal your heart to anybody because it might end up being a consequence to you. Um, They revealed their hearts. And I said, i got to be part of this, God. I mean, I don't know how you're going to use me. I don't have an intercessory gift. But I can pray. I can talk about the stuff that's bothering me, the things I'm concerned about, the things that I know are hurting outside of my relational world. And um, we did. We started praying every night. And we prayed... Specifically, It wasn't vague prayers of, dear God, to help me get through this. Yeah, that's nice, but, you know, hey, God, let's help Bob's wife get provision so she can keep the lights on this month because without him in there, it's really been a struggle. Let's help, you know, this baby get born safely because right now the doctors are saying there's a big challenge here, and this is his first grandchild. So we really got very specific. That group eventually became close to 20 people at night which in a population of twenty, two hundred people, give or take, was a pretty significant commitment. And the beautiful thing was, I think sometimes we pray, and I know I'm guilty of this, and we don't see the answered prayer. It's there, because God always answers prayers. In fact, in Mark, it says, you know, I know, you know consider your prayers answered as before you even pray them. I mean, like, I got this. He knows what's on our hearts. But when you verbalize them specifically out loud with other people that are keeping that prayer in their hearts as well, you get to see and witness how God is working in lives amazingly and realizing you have absolutely nothing to do with it. There are stuff that, you know, that would happen in Lynn's life, my family's lives, and I would go, well, if I was only there, that wouldn't have happened. I could fix this. Yeah, I tried fixing it. It didn't work, 48 months. It did not work. But when you can see the beauty of God answering prayers in his time and his fashion oh my gosh, we had a prayer list through the years I was there that was ridiculous. If anybody doubts we have an active God, a God that when we respond, he responds, because he's always reaching out, you just have to look at that list. You just have to look at that list. And Eric Merkel, as I mentioned, was a special part of that. He um, had, I don't even know what, technically I don't even know fully what he did, he had a long sentence. It was something financial in the oil industry. Um, but he had a gift for intercessory prayer, and he led us in that process and shared his gift freely. And he took a special adoption of my daughter Ashley. Um, when I went away, uh, my son was going into his senior year, finishing up his junior year, going to a senior year of college, and my daughter was a sophomore. And, uh, my, and my youngest daughter was in middle school, actually, at that point, and uh, took a special interest in Ashley. And would just say, hey, Wayne, I'm praying specifically for Ashley to get through this or get through that or deal with this situation, deal with her college. And oh, my gosh. I mean, I said to her, Eric, I said, thank you. It was beautiful. And then I watched, like, here's the prayer getting answered over here. Prayer, prayer was a powerful thing. It was a beautiful way to worship while we were there. And Eric was a special part of that. Um, this, is, this is kind of an interesting one to kind of think about. How do you really worship through service? And really, I think service and ministry are synonyms in, in Scripture, um, is how we get used in situations that are um, using our gifts and our talents and all those hands and feet images that we, we hear about. Uh, the it was interesting part of this, though, is it really was about in prison getting beyond the Christian bubble, because we can find ourselves in our church and our cars being really good Christians in all levels. But you know what? When someone would see us at the grocery store, they'd go, "Oh my goodness! Who was that person? And why? You know, what? A, that's not the character of a person I would associate with a Christ follower." It happens. We're we're human. We screw up. But in a setting like a prison, you can't be anything but letting your yeses be yes, your noes be no. That when you say something, you are accountable to it because the the, the wildfire of gossip and consequence is ridiculous. So getting outside of that Christian bubble and saying, okay, well, we do all this stuff. We just don't hang in a chapel all day. We don't just do worship. We don't just do prayer. Those are great things. How do we be representing the character that God would have us represent in serving others and ministering to others? And we had a really cool situation. I was leading a small group on Wednesday nights, and we were going through um, biblical literacy, basically how we got to 66 books of the canon, you know where they came from, the origins of them, the validation of them, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was walking by the TV room last night, which is another whole sermon together what the TV room dynamics are like. Um, there are more housewives, and w- whatever shows on the four TVs, it would be the big old fight on what was going to be on, but it was the biggest bunch of soap operatics I've ever seen. Um, is, uh, there was a guy named Jihad. That was his name in his Muslim name. He was a Muslim. And he was uh, someone I'd interacted with a lot because we shared chapel spaces. we transitioned, and I always had respect for him. He walks his faith, he's consistent in his faith. I wasn't gonna judge him on the fact he wasn't a Christian. And we were watching one of the events on TV and he was staring there, and it was something that, again, happened, which was being pointed toward Muslim terrorism. And what struck me is God said, you know, I wonder what's on his heart. And I'm like, here all the other guys badmouth Muslims, and here's Jihad sitting right there. And I'm going, I wonder what's on his heart. And I saw him later that day, I said, hey, Jihad, I'm not sure you're up for this. Um, but we have a small group that meets on Wednesdays, and I would love to have you come share with us the Muslim perspective on Muslim events in the world. And what, what lens you see the stuff that's happening, the ugly stuff, would you share what's on your heart about that? And I was expecting a no, but I had to ask. And he goes, Wayne, I trust you. And I trust you won't judge me on my response. I would love to meet with you guys. And he came, and he t- opened his heart. Found out there's a lot of interesting elements of Islam they're all about peace and all about love, not some of the, the warping we've gone through with our culture and our news today. But really, what it was about is we were all hurting about the same images we saw. No one wants to see families get blown up or towns blown up or children hurt. No one, not if they have any sane character in their soul. And he did. So going beyond that, cross, that Christian bubble, helped this little tiny group of people have a much different lens because a couple of them were pretty skeptical about why are we having him be part of this they had prejudged him before they had a conversation with the man just based on the fact he wore a, um, a headpiece and because he was Muslim um, at the end jihad came to our Christmas special our Christmas extravaganza whatever we wanted to call it our show that we did um, I have no idea what God's doing in his heart I just made it available to kind of respond to what God was prompting when I heard it and uh, who knows what, what, what's going to go beyond that um, trying to do this without notes, but I want to make sure I cover everything. Um, so that led to, I ended up doing a lot of teaching, mentoring outside of the, the church family. Um, I taught classes in reentry. I taught classes in uh, business um, uh, formation of new businesses and things like that. And I did a lot of one-on-one mentoring, helping guys with their business plans because great ideas that don't get put on paper are just not really that good idea of an idea. So I was able to use my gifts in way different ways, but what was interesting is, I was the same Wayne. I never helped, shit, no, hid my faith. I never um, compromised the words I would use with people because I would, they weren't of the same perspective. But they go, why are you doing this? I said, because this is what God needs me to do right now, and this is how I'm supposed to respond. This is my ministry. And they, go, they would just kind of shake their heads. And about three days later, sometimes they would come back and go, I like that. That's pretty cool. And some of them would come to church on a Sunday. And say, hey, you guys really do good music. I said, yeah, We try. And uh, it was opened up another door. Again, these other things started layering on top of one another. Um, one of the service things we did is uh, we would gather, when, when people would come to camp, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in just a second, we would, um, they would have to come in the doors, and basically their clothes are gone, they get sent home, and they come in with basically hospital scrubs and slippers. Um, that's what they walk into their new room with, that's what they walk into whatever, until their clothing gets issued and stuff. Um, they don't get toothbrush and toothpaste. They don't get a lot of the basic things. So we would gather as a Christian group, kind of a helps ministry, and um, we would take donations and we would have we would collect shower shoes and toothpaste and toothbrush and all those basic things that you could feel somewhat human coming through. Some of these guys come off buses. Some of them been in they never they were in county jail settings. I was very blessed that I was able to stay home until I um, I surrendered. Uh, but we would do this as a cool ministry, and it kind of leads me to kind of one of the things I want to talk about in. Terms of sacrifice. And this is kind of a last thing that really um, it was a highlight to as I look back. Uh, when you submit yourself to the federal prison system or any prison system, you get issued stuff: two pairs of pants, I got, three shirts, a couple T-shirts, five pairs of boxers, white socks, and Frankenstein boots. That's what they were: big, black, nasty, cheap, eight-dollar cost boots. That's what you get. Anything beyond that is a burden on the individual or their families, more importantly, to provide. So it could be that you want to get a pair of sneakers so you can walk around the track with the guy getting blisters on your feet, or you want to get a pair of sweatpants so you can work out, or you just want to be in something besides a zookeeper green. And if anybody's in here green today and I start shaking, I'm sorry. I love seeing diversity of sexes and colors. It's just absolutely awesome. Um, so, so we would sit there and get these things, but all that's expensive. We also lived on kind of a subsistence that was fairly not, not really good, a lot of starch, very little bit of protein, so you're always protein starved. So of course, being good business people, the commissary, which is the biggest profit center of the institution, would sell you meat and cheese and nacho chips and all these toiletries and headache, you know, medicines you need and everything. And it gets expensive. They would sell you new sneakers. They would sell you boots, or you know, work boots that were not the black ones. They would sell you sweats. They would sell you T-shirts, and it got really expensive. Um, but I've learned about a thousand ways to cook summer sausage in a microwave with pasta that I had a microwave, or rice I had a microwave, and put cheese. At the, and none of this requires refrigeration. Keep in mind, because it goes lives in your locker even when it's 95 degrees in your room. All this stuff's got to survive. But really what it is, the sacrifice comes back on the families and those people that are around these individuals to... Because really what I was going through, I was in a bubble of... My life wasn't happening around me. My daily life was the box I was in. Our families, Lynn, my kids, our friends, they had stuff every day, life struggles, stresses, provision, that were impacting them in really hard ways, um, but the where was I even going with that? So it happens when you derail on something. Um, all everything also costs money. Your your phone costs money. Your email costs money. Whether you read it or write it, it's costing you a nickel a minute. So everything you touched cost money. I had one of the best jobs in the institution. I was the sole lead clerk in charge of safety and. Um, Fire, safety, and recycling, materials management for the institution. I worked 40-plus hours a week. I got up every morning at 6 o'clock. I went down the hill to a place which actually felt kind of good. I drove a forklift. I offloaded a lot of food that was out of date. I used to see the meat, and I was like, well, I'm not eating that tonight because it expired a year ago. It's been frozen, but it expired a year ago. Lots of that. Um, I became like the the, the barometer on, do we eat this tonight, Wayne? What do you think? Um, But um, I made uh, $61.00. A month It was like 13 cents an hour, and I had the best job. I had a grade one job in the institution. Um, so needless to say, if I wanted to talk to my family or email them or uh, get any extra food or buy some sneakers, that came from someone else's pocket, because I sure him the first time in my life, I couldn't do anything. I was helpless. Uh, I remember specifically, I mean, missing some events that were really important to me. I missed my son's graduation. I missed my daughter's graduation from college. I missed my uncle's death, my only uncle. I missed my mom's death. Um, I missed all kinds of things that were sacrificial. But I think when I look at worship as a sacrifice in, in terms of worship, I remember getting a call from Lynn or an email, because we used email very, um, as much as we could. I got an email from Lynn that says, Hey, honey, I don't have any money left. And I know you're out of minutes. And I know you're out of food. I know you need toothbrush or whatever. I don't know what I'm going to do. A little while later, um, I got another email and said, hey, honey, I have 100 bucks left. I'm going to send you 50. Kelly and I will be fine till my next paycheck. That's sacrifice. And any of those guys that would sit there in prison saying that their baby mama or their wife or their girlfriend or their mom or grandma, they were so angry they didn't send them any money, I would hammer them in a nice way in love, but I was like, what are you doing? you know what they're going through? Do you know the sacrifice that you put them in? They didn't do anything to get you here. You did. And we keep people accountable through that sacrifice. Um, now, I can't uh, compare myself to Paul in any way, but I found that God unleashed a gift of words in me um, while I was there, in terms of how I administer, and also how I'd seek forgiveness and ask for, you know, reconciliation, in our own lives and our lives with different people we are um, impacted. Um, this is interesting because this letter, um, I typed this email and I saved it. Um, Christmas of 2012, my first Christmas there. I just found out, I think this week, that the prosecutors on my case were fired for misconduct. And subsequently the DA or the uh, federal the federal appointed person also had to step down because of misconduct. It would have been really easy to be bitter and angry. But I said, you know what? These are the words that came out of my my hands. It's seven, well, seven, eleven in the morning. I find myself in an opposition this year for the first time in about thirty years, and that is being in a place without a loved one to share the day with, nor the ability to give a gift to be opened. As you all know, that is very counterwiring for me. But for reasons and purposes that God sees necessary, this is where I am. So, how do I respond? Again, that response. Well, since a new game, a cool sweater, a box of CDs, or funky STEMware are not options for me, I have to give a gift of words and hope that you find them worth unwrapping. And I proceeded to write something to each of my children and to Lynn with the specific instructions to be read around the Christmas tree. I understand it was a very moist morning in that household that day. Um, in the context of Philemon, it's interesting because um, it's a very short letter. I was so glad that Dave, Dave said, oh, you're going to think I have to talk about around Philemon. I was like, oh, cool. Not 200 and some odd words. I'm good on this. Um, but what was interesting was uh, there's, a, there's a component here that made me realize while I'm not like Paul and I would never claim that, I could be a little like Onesimus in that formerly he was useless to you and now he has become useful. So I'm hoping that through all of this um, that I have a new use that God is going to deploy, whether it be telling my story, our story, Sharing worship, don't know. I know I'm not going to get ahead of God on this one because when I walk and leave him behind, there's a significant consequence. I don't want to go through that again. Um, You have to choose when you go through this situation how you're going to respond to it. Am I going to be defined by the fact I have a felony conviction on my background? Or am I going to let God, who is the amazing refiner, refine me in the process. Kind of like that Malachi image of refining silver or gold. You get rid of all the junk as you heat it up. But really what Lynn and I had this beautiful way of um, talking about what I needed to do in my life. And we talked about remodeling. That we looked at my experience there as I needed to remodel room by room those things in me that God didn't like. Or where I had just forgotten where God was in that situation. So slowly, but surely, we'd walk through remodeling the rooms in my heart that needed to be remodeled. And it healed our relationship. It healed. Um, I still was hopefully coming out a better dad, a better friend, a better husband, a better colleague. Um, I'm still judged, and that's okay. But I know I'm forgiven by the people that matter to me, and especially by God. And I've accepted that. Um, so, Yeah. What I'm uh, going to do now is move into a little bit of worship. And we're going to do this a little differently. Um, I'm going to say there are two songs that kind of were really important to me when I was there. Um, one of them, actually, there's a gentleman in the back that knows this song probably from when uh, we did a service trip down to, um, post Katrina down to uh, Mississippi and Mississippi, um, Never Let Go, which is how we're going to close this place. And I want us to rock it. I want us to lift the ceiling off this place because the words in it are beautiful. But I'm also gonna lead us in the first song, um, Sweetly Broken. And what I'm gonna ask is that, use it as a time of reflection. Maybe there's something in your life that um, you're seeing a little more clearly or maybe admitting to a little bit more clearly. Um, Maybe you know people around you that have been through similar situations or are facing some really tough struggles. And I'm just gonna encourage you to let them kind of soak into your heart, let the words wash over you if that's what um, needs to happen. If you need to worship them out, we're going to let that happen as well. We're just going to trust that the Spirit's going to guide us through this um, as we share it. And then Dave's going to close us out as we bring the band back up.
2: Suffering I do drink of its work I do sing for on it my Savior, both bruised and crushed. beckon me and you draw me gently to my knees and i am lost through A gift.